Welcome, everyone, to the brand new rebranded podcast, The Network Age. I'm Bitchel Ritson, and I'm here with longtime co host Tim Lakmeptev and our new bright, brilliant boy, Nilrun Mardux, who is going to be joining us on the pod. And we're, we're really excited to, to be here with this new, better, sexier, faster, stronger version of the podcast the the network age so thanks guys for being here thank you definitely um should we tell the people like why we made this decision and where we're we, you know yeah we, we have to we have this? to tell the people yeah we gotta we gotta let everyone know that everyone is everyone has been asking so i think that uh feel free to join in guys but we've been talking about how the the scope of the previous podcasts and some of our discussions was actually a bit narrower than we were interested in when we were talking about Web Zero, we're talking about rebuilding the internet from the ground up, and we still are really interested in those things and that technology and Urbit and Ookbar and everything that goes into it, but we're also really interested in broadening our perspective, not only to the technology behind Web3 and crypto, but dissecting, analyzing, predicting everything related to the next generation of the internet from the technology to society and culture and just what it means to be living in this next age. But before we get into discussing the network age and what we mean by that, I think we're really excited to welcome Phil to the show, our brand new beautiful baby boy, genius, businessman, world traveler extraordinaire. And so, Nilrun, uh, we're just wondering we want you the audience to get to know you how did you get interested in the the network age this new idea yeah for sure um so i i think it's kind of started with my introduction into crypto so it's actually tim luck who showed up at a barbecue i was having in boston uh with this other guy jared who's quite an interesting character a lot of <laughs> urban people have met him i think jared's um, gonna uh, enter a sort of network age sort of you know side character that it's always off the screen <laughs> this, this is actually yes. an exact this is actually exactly bitchell's origin story because he had like a similar recruitment thing with that's me yeah and, we, like, the J -Dog we, we talked about it on the last episode when you guys sh showed up got me drunk for me barbecue and said your destiny has arrived it was just different barbecues <laughs> different alcohol and like different yeah. like you know Jared's young men in their early 20s he feels he's, like he's, this. Like, he's a crypto like, groomer. Arrives, but in like maybe a good way. It's like this character <laughs> that's like not necessarily connected to everyone else, but just appears out of the blue, and you're like, "Oh yeah, Jared has arrived on the scene." Yeah, he's he's uh, he's crypto pilling and, and and dragging you into the the new dark lifestyle. Yeah, he even tried to get me pilled on Georgian wine and importing that into <laughs> Colombia where he lives. And he was like, all in on like, all right, Phil, we have to figure out how to get like wine for the country of Georgia into Colombia because this wine is like insanely good when we did that tour together with Ravnus Rickfer. So, yeah, I'm actually seeing Jared probably in Bogota in a couple weeks. So it's all, yeah, Jared's always a theme. Yeah. <laughs> so Jared uh, got you into it. And then what? Yeah, so they were at a barbecue just showing me, I was running Airbnb businesses at the time uh, in my spare time. That was sort of my way, to, my store of value, you could say. And then I was working in tech, um, at specifically healthcare tech um, in Boston. And they showed up, Tim Luck and Jared, and they were just showing me, you know, this is how much money we're making on Ethereum. This is like during the Ethereum pump of 2017, although still fairly early. I think it was at 300 and it ended up at about 1100. 
And, you know, I was slightly, honestly, off-put by that type of uh, conversation. Um, But overall, I was like, okay, Ethereum sounds interesting. I started reading up on Ethereum. I had read about Bitcoin back in, like, 2013 when I was a senior in college um, and gotten interested. And then I ended up getting looped into this, like, ICO project through a friend of Tim Lux, who was also, like, someone I'd known from my days in, like, a suburb north of Boston that will not be named. And yeah, I got very into um, crypto at the time and then weirdly went to Bitcoin Miami 2018 in January right at the top. And it was just like insane. Lambos everywhere. Everyone was doing Coke models. It was actually extremely off-putting for me, just like that energy. But I stuck through it through the winter, uh, through that bear market. And yeah, it was just like I was very convinced that like there was something in crypto, but I couldn't identify what it was yet. And then it was um, COVID that essentially like wiped out all of my Airbnb bookings and like kind of made me question the U.S. economy. Like we started printing 30 percent more dollars in that one like 12 month period of COVID alone. And I just started like questioning my assumptions, started reading a ton of Nietzsche uh, age <laughs> mindset, like that. <laughs> I just like I was like hiking, meeting Nietzsche, like debating why like my mother-in-law was overly controlling. Um, and just like massive crisis right around thirty, you know, identity crisis. Um, I think it even came a little bit earlier. And then at the same time, um, I kind of was like, all right, I need space. I went to Mexico, Mexico City, loved it. And started, like, got sick of Nietzsche and started reading a ton of Austrian economics and went, like, hard into Austrian economics. And then I was just, like, massively orange-pilled with Bitcoin at that point, late 2020. Went, like, all in on Bitcoin. Was like, okay, I need to sell my houses. I need to, like, move abroad. Um, And it was through that, like, process of moving abroad, first, like, because I was in Mexico City 2020, and then immediately when I got back to Boston, I sold one of my two houses and I told my, I told my friends and family like, oh, I want to go back to Mexico City immediately um, and ended up inviting uh, Tim Luck to Mexico City. So Tim Luck came, you know, this is a couple of years after he and Jared were trying to ETH pill me back in 2017. It's kind of cool to see Tim Luck has come full circle and is now, you know, back on the ETH train. And at that point, they started, you know, Tim Luck started um, basically urbit pilling me as like, okay, look, no run, you already get, um, you get Bitcoin, you're kind of like a maxi now, you're selling your houses, but like, there's this new cool thing, like sound computing to kind of complement sound money. And at that point, I listened to, he pointed me to Ravnus Rickfer's um, urbit from the inside out, which was like just awesome. And so now I went from listening to Nietzsche in the mountains about a year earlier to listening to the sweet sounds of, you know, Ralphinus Rickfer in the Mexican mountains. And so I'm going in the, the opposite direction as you. I'm, I'm, I'm going towards more Nietzsche in the, in the mountains. So maybe this is a zero sum Nietzsche mountains <laughs> system. <laughs> it might have. be. I saw this, uh, Tondas sent me this really good meme of like the sort of radicalization loop where you get more radical then you go back to normie and you just like cycle yeah. in and out. Cycle, yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's honestly kind of felt like that. Uh, and now I'm sort of cycling back into Nietzsche a little bit. Um, although also with law, strong bouts of Christianity. So that was, that's what got me into Urbit was actually, um, seeing, seeing the people in practice, seeing, like talking to Tim Luck about it, listening to Ravnus Rickfer, 
talking to Tondas and Sarpin in Mexico City. And that convinced me that like, okay, this is like, we need cloud computing. This is incredibly complementary to Bitcoin. Um, now I'm a little bit more of an ether person, but complementary, we need cloud computing. And then I was like, okay, I want to meet these people. They sound really interesting. I want to see how I can kind of, how I can add value to sort of crypto via sound computing. And so then I met up with uh, Ralph Nistrick for in person at Bitcoin Miami, met up with Logan in Austin and just had like, just met a ton of Urbit people. And I was like, all right, these people share kind of a surprisingly large amount of like cultural alignment with me. They're really awesome people to hang out with. And COVID was this time of like, not a lot of community. And so I decided to kind of build my community around Urbit. And that's what got me into this whole like network aids, sound computing, because, you know, a big theme of Sovereign Individual, fantastic book from 97, is this idea that like, technology will shape our age. Um, so Bitcoin, ETH, sound money is going to have a huge impact. And that's really obvious. We can go into that on this podcast. But also sound computing, where you kind of have, you know, privacy, no search and seizure, because you actually have encrypted communication. Um, you can say what you want, your freedom of speech. So a lot of kind of like the things that were critical to creating the necessary conditions for America in like around 1800 are being recreated through crypto tools where you no longer have to rely on a third party. So I got really into that, thinking about the implications, trying to apply sovereign individual to real life, trying to apply some of uh, actually patchwork as well. So there's a lot of books that sort of influenced me on this kind of quest to start kind of teaching the leaders of this new age to kind of like step up into, um, into this new development and really try to guide it um, into the, I'd say, what I think will be a phenomenal age for everyone who's listening to this podcast, maybe not for like <laughs> the boomer like person trading gold, but for everyone listening to this podcast, like you should definitely be optimistic. Like we need to shake that doomer dust off. Like, fuck that. Like this is going to be really, really uh, awesome for you guys. And you need to kind of start embracing this sort of like what we'll call network age mindset of like being a leader of this. Yeah, that's super exciting. I think I think it should be our mission as our pod to just also just tell our listeners all the time, you're gonna be great. You guys are beautiful. You're on the right side. We're going up. And I I think something <laughs> I think Autism something is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. It's, you're the you're the perfect uh, little beautiful snowflake you're always you're always told you would be. Um I and I think something that's that's really exciting about having you on the podcast, No Run, is what you said about not merely following these trends and being interested in them, but leading them, helping to shape this new age, being ambitious. Because, you know, I'm, I'm someone, I just like, I like to float along. I see the, the interesting, pretty things, and I say, oh, cool, great, you know, when are they going to happen to me? But it's really awesome to have you here and, and have Tim here and people who are saying, let's really create this infrastructure, let's build this brand new, exciting world that, we we want to live in. So I think with that, Tim, I'd, I'd really like to throw this question to you. Know, we're, you know, we're talking about the network age. What is what does that mean to you? What uh, what is this new era that we're moving into? Okay, so let me frame that by just by following on what you were just saying to Neil Run about liking his like leadership perspective, which is that for me, the network age is this combination of sort of deterministic tech like technology happening to us 
and then us also like in return acting on the technology. So I think like the network age for me is this sort of set of possibilities that are created by the intersection of uh, crypto, uh, per sort of like you know permissionless innovation operating systems like Urbit. I think is like you know the most compelling. Although there could be other ways to engineer that. Um, and when you put those things, and then I think also the increased willingness and acceptability of things like you know, remote work, uh, software, you know, almost everything in the world reducing to software. And I think you, those are all the like technological determinants that set the stage for, you know, a world where you have almost this, almost this like parallel digital society going on, even while its members are still like, you know, very much living as like sort of, you know, normal trad citizens in whatever, you know, places they are. And then I think that, so that's, you know, extremely interesting to see how that parallel thing progresses almost in the same way that like you have, uh, you know, once online dating exploded, you had this sort of whole parallel, fully digital mediated world of people meeting on Tinder, but then still having their dates in the same, you know, restaurants, bars or whatever is how I, I guess a good metaphor for how I see this. But then there's the aspect of like leading that and shaping it, which is that whatever technological point you're at, there's always decisions that you can make, energy that you can direct to various parts of like that technology to move it in directions you want. And I think my biases there will probably become, you know, clear the things that are most interesting to me. But it's this really exciting time because you have both this like huge growing collection of like talent and resources in the parallel digital world, which then like further gives this like uh, sort of almost raw material that leaders in it uh, can try to shape. Does that kind of start to answer your question of what I think of the, the network age? A hundred percent. I think some of what you're saying is here is that we're really undergoing a radical change in how computing is done on the technology software level and what we need to discuss also and have in mind is how that is going to reshape the human part of this experience that, you know, all of these things are in service of a way of living and a way of doing things and that we are now at a point in history where technology is changing rapidly and will rapidly affect how we live and interact with each other. Even more, I think that not only is, you know, the technology in service of humans in a way of living, it actually creates, and this is a little bit more adversarial, which is just how I think about things. I'm a very sort of evolutionary adversarial thinker. It creates like the conditions for different modes of living to both sort of flourish on their own, but also probably come in contact with each other and compete in various ways for followers, resources, whatever. And I think that if we're going to transition into the ways that we think the network age goes beyond something like, you know, even ideas that people have put forward recently, like the network state, I think this is a good intro into it for me. Uh, no, Ron, I think you had something you wanted to say about that. Yeah, so I think I think that's totally right. Totally agree with those points. I think it really it's a time to kind of call into question a lot of assumptions we have. Like, do we need scale? Like, if you look at Balaji's book, The Network State, it talks about eventually we'll amass millions of people and billions of dollars. But like, do we want millions and billions of people, or do we just want like a hundred thousand of the best coders? Uh, he also talks about um, you know like diplomatic recognition by a state. 
do we want that? What's the point of being recognized as a state or by a state? Is the state an enduring institution um, or is it a weak? Like, does it endure in some forms but lose a lot of its power? Like the Catholic Church, using the sort of sovereign individual example, the Catholic Church lost a lot of its control over marriage, taxation, uh, days off work, and it moved to the state during the Protestant Reformation. So is this going to be a similar period? I think I think yes. I think like we need to question a lot of our assumptions that we had from the 20th century. And then um, we need to then essentially um, look at it anew and be like, okay, we're building a parallel economy. Is that also going to be a parallel society? Is that a parallel culture? What parts of art are going to survive after this? Yeah, with regard to the scale question, which is like, I, you know, I hadn't thought of it in that way. I think we're going to, as we do this podcast, we're going to start quickly finding ourselves wanting to differentiate between different kinds of scale and different kinds of network effects. So I think that for what I see as like, you know, the network age to become possible and have the, all these different cultures and ways of living, like thriving, um, will want a precondition probably will be having a lot of resources uh, in crypto, just like having literally just the market cap of let's say ETH being really high. But once you have that, I think in the sense of accumulating huge scale in the form of like, you know, do you need a 300 million person nation state to have like, to have succeeded? I think that's where we'll see some really interesting kinds of, uh, of localism. Yeah, I think in, in this way, you know, one reason we've come to the network age as an idea is because this is something that's on people's minds, right? And the Balaji's network state, regardless of what you think of the book, is something that people are talking about. But I think we all seem to think that the Balagian vision is, you know, while ambitious and interesting in some ways, is also somewhat narrow. And it doesn't encompass a lot of what we are excited about that it, that is so much broader, you know, it involves art and, and culture and not as, not just fitting this new vision of the way networks enable interaction into us an old model of statehood. Yeah, I think my biggest critique of the network state is, you know, as you said, that in some ways it doesn't go far enough, but also that it, it seems to be extremely tied to old assumptions. It, it has, it has a t when you're talking about like, oh, we can build these like big digital communities, get them to, you know, a couple million people and then have them like almost apply for statehood or something. To me, that feels so much like, you know, someone in 1450 being like, you know, we're going to like, you know, get all the heretics together, like get them to build like a big, like, you know, heretic church. And then we're going to like, you know, make them be like, you know, recognized as like, you know, some diocese in France or something by the Catholic Church. Like it's, it, it sounds ridiculous because it's so tied to an old paradigm when I think like, you know, what we're mostly interested in is, OK, there's, you know, there's a printing press now. Shit is going to get like very weird. And I think the world and, you know, by 1550 was like incredibly weird for someone from like 50 to 100 years prior in a way where a lot of the things even that people had been fighting over were no longer the things you were fighting over. So I don't want to take historical analogies too far, but I think that kind of just is roughly where I think, uh, where I sort of frame what we're thinking of relative to something like the network state. Okay. 
So we just thought that the best way to go into this as we rebrand and expand the topics that we're getting to here on the podcast is to go through you through each of us and just say what we actually think is going to happen. What are our predictions? What are our theses about what this space is going to look like? All right. Awesome. Yeah. So I think the network age, I think it needs to be thought of as like this big shift similar to how we went from agrarian societies to industrial. I think this is going to be not just like a little blip on the radar. This is going to be like an entirely new period that we look back to. Um, interestingly, no one really defined the industrial age as the industrial age until like a hundred plus years after it's happening. So it's a little bit funny to be defining the network age now, but I think with the kind of literature context we have with the on the ground experience that we have in this age, I think we can do so. I think network age is such an apt term for me because it's like, all right, we see these like small networks forming, um, but they, they also like scale upwards. So we see, like what we see with Ukbar is a completely different type of company than what we had in even Web2. You know, it's distributed, it's using stable coins to pay people. It's not really subject to bureaucracy in the same way. Um, you know, it, it, it spans all jurisdictions. So it's like which jurisdiction has uh, control over it. It's a lot less clear than when you're running a factory and that factory is physically in one place and the labor force has to go into that factory to work. Um, so my overall thesis would be, we're already seeing it, it's this rise of a parallel economy. And I think the parallel economy comes first. So it's the same with the industrial age. We had this sort of parallel um, entire economy work out in the industrial age where people started moving into cities, started working out of factories, and everything was shifting there. And then after that shift in the economy, you'll end up seeing in this network age a shift, I think, in a parallel society, parallel culture, and basically... It's that economic engine that then leads to the new innovation. It's sort of like how crypto bros are now investing in NFTs, right? It's, it's pushing into art because there's so much money now. And that rise is, is very, very fast. So even the 27 bubble or cycle, if they want to call it that, that I first got involved in crypto with, that was a pretty small economy. And then you flash forward to 2021, it's huge. It's $3 trillion dollars. And that's mentioned not just by me, that's mentioned by the White House puts out a statement saying, look at the crypto economy, like we're going to start thinking about how to regulate it, but look how quickly it's growing. And like, flat, you know, buy, it's already huge. There's already a ton of jobs. It's already internally working such that people are hiring internally. People don't really care about the outside journalists writing about us. It's more about our own credibility within the space. And I think that's just going to accelerate even faster. And with 10x, you know, go from 3 trillion to 30 trillion, you are a massive economy at that point. And that's going to have a huge effect on art, culture, how we live, et cetera. So that's kind of my view. My thesis is this emerging parallel economy that gets bigger and bigger and starts to eat away at the old world. And it starts to call into question things that we used to take as basic assumptions, like the Fed issues, the currency, all laws come from the state. Um, we live in one jurisdiction, and we're subject to one jurisdiction. And I think we're going to have very different lifestyles. But I'll kick it over to Tim to kind of get his thoughts, because I know he has a pretty good thesis on this as well. So, yeah, Phil, I think you actually, more you know, more so than I thought you would, you covered a lot of the way that I look at it. I think one additional part of it is that 
I want to address something that can seem a little too circular. Like, okay, all this money will be in this parallel digital world and everyone's working in it. But a lot of people from the old paradigm will ask, okay, what are they actually creating? What's their value they're creating? Surely they must be, you know, linking back to the old world in some way or, you know, do it like doing something there. And I think that neglects just the insane amount of value today that's created by software. Um, if you can, you know, create pieces of software that are used to then like create others and make that more productive, you can orchestrate almost, you know, anything in the world and almost treat it as like an export where you have this, you know, massive digital economy that's creating just a huge fraction of everything that people use to socialize, run their machines, run their companies. Um, you know, everything you have is coming out of this. And that's probably in the, you know, tens of trillions of dollars in terms of how much that's worth. And I think that like one of the biggest interesting things to come out of this age will just be the amount of software innovation that's unlocked. And this is sort of a separate topic that we've hit on earlier versions of the podcast when it was web zero is how the lack of like, you know, really strong operating systems have gotten us stuck in a certain paradigm. But I think the, the combination of new capital formation, um, dev first, um, so like social networks, money, like money being inside there and then people being able to like easily work with others in a lot of configurations uh, and innovate combined with like really strong and novel operating systems is going to make this explode into, you know, to the point where I would almost call it a singularity. And I can, you know, go into my thoughts there later. But I think that the big for me, one of the big things we're going to see here is just this rapid innovation in everything digital, uh, but especially in software and social structures. And then I think what that will do after something like probably 20 to 40 years is after a period of stagnation in the physical world, we'll actually then unlock innovation there because there's actually a lot of innovation that could be done today in the physical world and things ranging from transportation to nuclear energy to like space exploration that's actually more blocked at the social and almost you could call it if, to the degree that you think of politics as or like corporations as a digital layer, uh, they're much more the blocker than physical processes. So I think the thing I want to get now that, you know, Phil and I have given our breathless uh, prognostications <laughs> of where things are going is what for Jesse, what, what about this? Like, what do you think about this and what has what are you skeptical will happen? And also what has surprised you in the last few years in terms of how fast it has gone or in terms of how things have changed? Well, I think um I come at this topic from a slightly different angle than you guys. You know, I'm not as technical as you, Tim. And I think I don't have this innate ex excitement about the network state that a, a lot of other people have. I'm sort of skeptical of it because I think a lot of my personal life is organized around being less online rather than more online. And I have really been convinced that this technology is coming, it's happening, and it's going to create a lot of really wonderful new things. I, I love these ideas of, of freedom and, and sovereignty and giving more power to more individuals. That was one of the things that really excited me about, I don't know, the, the ICO era, which we talked about before, which is, you know, full of scams and, and pump and dumps, but was ambitious. You know, the buzzword at the time was democratize, right? This is democratizing access to banks, democratizing access to 
whatever you want. And I think that that, you know, I've come to realize that doesn't really mean anything. But I do think that there is this exciting idea that crypto can expand access to really vital tools for people. And one concern I have is as like money has flown into this to I've seen wealthy people and and people who already had power in traditional structures starting to take a hold of these systems again. And so I'm really interested and curious about what will happen in this with this respect of like expanding access and a sort of people first approach to money banking law versus exclusion and you know this is something well, one reason I'm really skeptical of the, a lot of these NFT projects which seem to me a way to artificially create scarcity and exclusive pl- clubs for people who already have money and power which I just don't particularly care about I'm actually writing a little bit more about this for my blog uh, this coming week. But so I think that this is is one place that when I think about the network state, I really love the idea of giving people more power to build their communities. And I just wonder about who exactly this is going to serve. And I, I, I think there's part of it, like I have some Luddite in me that's just like skeptical of a digital first approach to relations as a way of organizing our ourselves and our brains, though both of you have convinced me a little bit. I don't know, Tim, like you said, the, you know, the, the network state is like the idea of why I moved to Brooklyn in my mid-20s. It's a way of selecting a type of experience and a type of person you want to hang out with. And then when you play out that part, the, the, the Brooklyn section of your life, if you're like me, you go and do grad school in Montana, which is another way of organizing your thoughts and people and relationships. And so I I am convinced that giving people choice about how they live their life is really exciting. I just think it's, you know, how do we do that in a way that serves people without narrowing the way resources are distributed? I want to get into one thing that you talked about there because I think you might not know the extent to which I actually agree really strongly with you on a lot of it. And that was when you were saying that a lot of this new world, uh, this digital world, as capital has flowed in, has mostly recreated the old one in terms of, let's say, you know, just like random crypto bros buying like NFTs or like, you know, to the degree we see like, you know, VCs dominating a lot of aspects of crypto really heavily, what have you. And I think that I also have a strong aesthetic and social revulsion to that. And I think it's like terrible, but I also am, you know, a very, (laughs) the only only thing I actually really know about Nietzsche is just the phrase like will to power. So I think I also have this, (laughs) if we're going to go, if everyone else gets to do Nietzsche, I can do it as well. Um, But I also, I'm very much like sort of this, you know, will to power kind of person. So when I have something that I dislike, I tend to look then at what are the fundamental technological and social configurations that are creating that? And is there any leverage point at which you could sort of attack that? And one starting point for this for me is that I think that a lack of ability to make interesting software that connects to crypto is heavily, heavily responsible for the mostly like financial gamifying of it. Like if all you can do with it is play pretty basic financial games and, you know, even most VCs are basically investing in Ponzi's. I think that then what you're going to get is like not only a, 
you know, reordering of the old world and like sort of a mirroring of, you know, Wall Street in a lot of ways. Uh, but also just like even the people who win inside crypto, if even if they're totally new and you're getting a reconfiguration of like power, it's also going to be sort of shitty, boring people uh, who only care about like, you know, money in the most basic, let's call it, you know, Chinese and Russian ways where, you know, the end goal is yachts. I think didn't <laughs> Suju was like, Suju was like trying to get his yacht. He got, he got rugged at the end. Uh, but you know, for three arrows capital, close. but he was he, close to yachts. He, was, he almost made it to the, like, you know, the, uh, whatever, what we can call the Russian Chinese dream, um, yeah. spiritually at least, if not ethnically. Um, and, for me, I think as the most exciting thing about what I've been seeing in places like Urbit is this real power that comes when you empower developers and people who like cool things to make cool things and permissionlessly do them and start making them for their friends and not have to, you know, go to sort of outside structures for funding as much or at least be able to get control over those. And so I think that Crypto on its own is not a sufficient condition for an awesome network network age. And I think that having really robust like operating systems that enable sort of permissionless innovation in that context is critical and critically overlooked. Um, I think, Phil, you have some you, you have some takes here as well. Yeah, for sure. And I, I totally agree. I think it's like not sufficient um, at all. I do think we need this. We need this urban layer. I mean, a lot, a lot of it is actually this social graph, you owning your social graph, because like that seems small. But what you're doing is you're able to basically um, accrue value to something that's stable. You're able to build on a really firm foundation with these crypto tools, especially with Urbit, especially with having... Um, you know, instead of just building a Twitter following that, you know, may or may not go away, uh, here it's like you're able to push the people over to Urbit, um, and then you can iterate new front ends on top of that. So we got Escape. There was a front end on Groups. It was way, way better. Everyone was able to just download that front end. It was easy. And then all of the back end data, all of your connections were already there. So we have this foundation that we can build really beautiful software on top of now that we did not have before. Uh, I think Tim, you've you've done a lot of that sort of software layer. So curious your thoughts there. Yeah. So Phil, for me, the most compelling thing you just talked about there is when you said, you know, your social your social graph seems like a small thing. And I think this is really important understanding the shift from the network age. Sorry, from the old model to the network age. Because if you think about why someone would live in San Francisco or you know New York, the entire point was to build up a a social graph there that was almost embodied in the very like streets of the city or like the restaurants there or like the you know meetings you would go to. Um, and we've put social graphs into digital form in things like Facebook. But when you don't have like you know rich software there, ability to have it interact with crypto and do capital formation like do software development, start companies, it's fairly limited. And so I think actually shifting the social graph into a user-owned form and adding like productivity to it is a huge deal and is directly competing with what cities do at their best. Get me when Urbit has better Chinese food. <laughs> well, I mean... 
Actually, that's like that's actually sort of the point. Whenever you're talking about embedding social graphs in a physical structure, you're going to use the aspects of that physical structure that lend themselves well to the physical. People will meet at like you know restaurants that work or whatever. And I think in the same way, like digitally, like they'll be in groups of people that are fun and cool and have ideas. Essentially, what they want is like you know Chinese food for the mind in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. And I think I, well, the people who are who, who are best at being very online, like they're actually really good at like serving up delicious mind dishes for their members that go beyond things like, you know, money or access. Yeah, but you're hungry 30 minutes later, so... Eh. <laughs> then you, you, then you, keep, you keep coming back for your digital metaphorical food fix. Okay, so after a brief interlude, we are back. Right now, it is just Bitchel and Nilrun. Timlock had to go deal with being a father. Unfortunately, a task that has not yet been moved onto the blockchain. And because mm. Nilrun is here, yeah, a new host, and he is also working on some really exciting projects, including a his own company called Aleph, which uh, interacts directly with these ideas of the network state in the network age, uh, we wanted to chat about his project because we, we've already been interrupted a couple times by real problems of this sort of network state <laughs> life. First, we had uh, the interruption of 10 a.m. reggaeton at the El Salvador mm. uh, Hotel, and, and now no one's dealing with a little bit of water poisoning, right? Yeah, I mean, both of those somewhat on me. I mean... Last weekend was one of the biggest party weekends in El Salvador. So, like, yeah, 10 a.m. That's actually kind of late to start reggaeton here. Probably in Colombia. Uh, sure, sure. They're, starting, they're probably starting at, like, 7 a.m. in Colombia. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I think um, we had that. Uh, learned some lessons about water, for sure. Definitely not going to drink on... Uh, we need to put water on the blockchain so I know the source, you know? Exactly, the provenance. Uh, we need it to be tracked. The provenance uh, was not there. Mm-hmm. So, well, you know, these are, these are just some of the exciting things that you could be doing if you're living in the network state. And if you're living this, what, uh, what you've called, Nilrun, the, uh, the frontiersman lifestyle. In fact, you've, you've described yourself as a bit of a frontiersman of the network age and have spent some time, you know, living all around the world and also talking to people who work in the tech and crypto space about why they're interested in living outside the U.S. or their home country and building this new age yeah for sure and the frontier is sort of an interesting topic to talk about because um you know it's in balaji's book it's in software individual software individual talks a lot about these no man zones between say england and scotland between france and spain and how those had completely different laws than other spaces and then of course like we're americans um our families immigrated to america a lot of them had immigrated you know to specifically settle the frontier so, like, my, you know, whatever great-great-grandparents from Switzerland, they settled Lancaster County. It was very similar from sort of a agricultural perspective to parts of Switzerland and Germany they were used to. Um, but then eventually we, like, closed off the frontier. So we kept moving west. And Daniel Boone is kind of the best example of this. He was always constantly moving west. Like, he mapped the Ohio River Valley. Then he mapped Kentucky. Then he mapped Tennessee. And he just, like, kept moving west. And, like, why was that? Well, land was free, 
and there was this sense of adventure well, if you and the took ability it. to build. <laughs> yeah, that's that's like kind of a key point that relates to this kind of modern day frontier, which is like it's less about is anyone currently on the land. It's more like how strongly are they able to hold that land and do they have is there a new group that has better capabilities to make use of that land? Like, for example, really good example is just the settlers had um, plows so they could actually get through very tough soil around Massachusetts Bay. The Indians didn't have that. Um, so their populations were just much more capped due to the lack of agricultural technology that the Puritans had brought. And kind of a similar thing moving west. Like, of course, people like Daniel Boone, he's kind of famous uh, for a few things, but of course they had like way better firearms than the Indians there. So overall, like, how does that relate? It's, it's this point that like the frontier closed in the U.S. in 1890. It was a very big deal. Um, but frontiers always reopen when new technology, for example, or new circumstances give you capability to use a space that simply wasn't possible before. And that's, that's kind of the core of this. Like, when we all had to work out of New York or Silicon Valley, I was sort of stuck in Boston for a number of years, um, there wasn't really any frontier. New York is not a frontier. Silicon Valley is not a frontier. It's extremely owned space. And you kind of know this through, like, the rental prices, uh, the regulations, cost $100 million to build a bike lane in SF. Um, but when it all went remote, when there was this diaspora from Silicon Valley, we now had this opportunity to kind of like spread out and find areas where frontiers do exist. And I would say kind of like just as a sort of allude to the frontier I see, it's, it's this interesting overlap between digital and physical where a lot where, you know, we meet up in person in a place like Mexico City, Ukraine, Portugal, El Salvador, um, but we always have this digital back end where people can kind of see what we're up to, even if they're not physically present. And that's something that just like was not possible in the frontier in 1880 when it was closing off. Of course. Yeah. So you're describing a community that you're helping to form that exists online and also involves people moving in and out of each other's lives in a real physical space and getting these benefits that uh, occur from being able to talk to anyone in the world, but also being able to see them and build connections in community in person. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's on a spectrum, just like autism is. And so some people sure. need a lot of that in-person interaction. That's and some me, people don't yeah. need much at all. Yeah. And I'm, I'm the same, frankly. Like right now, I've been setting things up in El Salvador for the past week, but I don't have like the crew of 12 guys I traveled with here back in May and June. And so I don't know, it's like just not quite as good of an experience. It's a little different. Um, you know, to one, at one point I'm meeting more of the local Salvadorian elite. So that's great. But there is kind of, I'm a very social person. And so for me, I kind of want to have constant community. Whereas people like Tim Luck are kind of, I would say on the exact opposite spectrum. Like, you know, of course he has his family and a couple friends in Italy, but it's like mostly he exists online through both Ukbar and through Urbit and Twitter. So, of course, having to flee a war zone will disrupt your community a little bit from, from time to time. That's something we, you know, every one of us deals with, uh, you know, in our personal lives, a couple of war zones. Here and yeah, there. we could ask, uh, we should interview Sarpin at some point about yeah, you yeah. Know, spending five days down in the bunkers of, uh, well, I guess, you know, it's really funny, actually, because I was living in Kiev for uh, five months last year, and I would take the subway to the gym, and I'd go, it's like half a mile underground, and I'd keep thinking, like, dude, this is so stupid how far this is. Like, why would you build your subway as a bomb shelter? 
And then, you know, like two months later after I leave for Christmas and go to Mexico, you know, Sarpin is sheltering it as a bomb shelter. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Yeah. you never know what will happen. I I think that's part of the advantage of this current sort of digital overlay is we can be far more flexible. Like Tim Luck, when he left Ukraine, he had all of his money with him. Um, He basically didn't lose anything. Whereas if you're, you know, a 20th century entrepreneur and your home city gets attacked like that, uh, you're going to be poor when you mm-hmm. when you leave. And so that's kind of just a massive difference in sort of the logic of violence, a kind of a theme that I think is really important when we think about, can someone stop this frontier? What can someone do to prevent this from happening? And I, one of the reasons, you know, that he didn't just lose everything, I think we talked about this on a previous pod, is the ability to get assets into crypto and move them securely across borders, which was invaluable for him and for others. And I, I think that exactly. this... This leads to another question that I'm interested in. You said you've talked to a lot of different people about why they're sort of choosing this. Digital nomad is one way to put it, uh, lifestyle, but I think the idea of the network state is is something, and network age is something that's much larger than just digital nomadism, which has been around for a long time. And, you know, there's there's been people working off their computers in Chiang Mai for a long time. What in your mind makes this different and what are the reasons that people are choosing this life? Hmm. Yeah, good question. So a few things. One is kind of the type of people that can go digital nomad. So back when Tim Luck uh, went abroad, I think in like 2010, he had to be, you know, teach English out of Korea. Whereas uh, you go, he goes abroad now, he's living in Italy, he has the exact same job opportunity as he has in SF. So like the, you're kind of like the jurisdictional arbitrage uh, in terms of jobs isn't there anymore. You can just get the same job from pretty much anywhere and just work it as long as you are slightly flexible in hours. Um, another big area is just like, this is more of kind of like places are explicitly courting digital nomads now, like 24 mm-hmm. countries have digital nomad visas. I think back in like 2019, it was like five. So this is like massively shifting. People want these workers. So they're both higher value, which is also driving an increase in visa programs targeted towards getting these people living out of your jurisdiction. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think, well, Going to the project that you're building, you're trying to build an infrastructure that is larger than a single person, right? This digital nomad idea is Mm. one person, maybe two people moving around. Maybe you connect with other people who are doing the same thing. But your project involves physical spaces, institutions, like real living groundwork for, for people in this lifestyle. Exactly. I kind of see it. Balaji had this good phrase, society as a service. I think with like, this is what Silicon Valley kind of provided uh, its software developers for a long time was this sort of like pretty closed, tight knit society in both SF and Silicon Valley. It's sort of premier event was Burning Man. Um, And then because of the diaspora, we kind of lost that. And I think like, you know, having lived as a digital nomad for about two years and talked to a lot of these urban guys and ETH guys and you know, Bitcoiners as well about digital nomading, even random girls in like Costa Rica, like, you know, surf yoga. <laughs> like mm-hmm. the joke in Costa Rica is you, are you here for surfing or yoga? And I think sure. that's actually like the main issue with the old digital nomad is it was very activities based. And I see like three types of communities. One are based on activities. They're very weak. People don't really form that close connection to the people they're hanging out with. So if you go to like a surf hostel, sure, you'll get like drunk with them, you'll have fun, but it's a lot weaker than when you have a purpose-driven one like Bitcoin maximalism or urban maximalism. 
Um, although I hate the term maximalism, like Urbit is a lot smarter than Bitcoin in that it mm-hmm. knows it's just one piece of this sovereign stack. It's a very critical piece, but it's just the computing piece, whereas Bitcoiners, man, I still, they still struggle on in terms of like what exactly is the purpose of their community besides just stacking sats. So I'm, I yeah. mean, and is that really any different, though, from organizing around a physical activity like surfing or rock climbing? It seems to it seems to be sort of just a similar thing pointed in a different direction. I think it's radically different. It's like the difference between like the word desire and passion, where like passion and I only know this because it was at like, <laughs> you know, it was at the Austin church I went to uh, like a week ago. But like it talked about passion as like willingness to suffer for it. For activities, you might have a desire to go surfing in Costa Rica, but you're not willing to like actually suffer a lot to go surfing. Whereas, you know, look around at all like the Urbit devs, like they've suffered quite a lot. They've taken, you know, Ravnus Rickford took a 50% pay cut to work for Talon initially. That was entirely on faith. Like no one had any, 2017, like no one had any idea. Uh, very few people had like recognized Urbit as valuable yet. And so, yeah, I think, I think it is important that you're willing to suffer for that community that you're building. I think that distinction makes sense. Though I would say I definitely know people who have suffered for like, you know, a type of physical, I mean, you should meet some of these rock climber people, people man, they're living in the absolute weirdest spaces to have access to the rock they want. Mm. Um, but I, I think that you, what you're saying makes sense to me about this idea of organizing around something larger than, uh, than a single idea, even if it manifests in, in one particular similarity, such as, you know, whether it's Bitcoin or Urbit, but that being the groundwork for something larger. Though, I, you know, I have a question when you talk about society mm-hmm. as a service. You know, you work for this, you know, you're trying to, workforce is not the right word, you're f- founding, running a, a, this company, Aleph. When you say society yeah. as a service, what, what are the services and what, what does that mean? What does it look like on a sort of infrastructural level? And what are the physical, technological, legal barriers that you're encountering? encountering? Yeah, so this kind of, this loops into like actually the third type of community, which is like more values driven. And so we're trying to set up like a value layer where, you know, even if you're nomading, you can basically pick from like a spectrum how much you want to nomad and be entirely flexible on that. So maybe it's one month of the year, maybe it's 12, and maybe you want to do it from one location or you want to do it from 20. Um, And what you want to do, what is like crucial to this from kind of living it and from talking to everyone who's done this is having like a cultural hub. We call it like sort of the hub and spoke model where you have, you can think of it as like a clubhouse in the core cities, mainly where Web3 is. So, you know, if you look at what Austin, what Assembly Capital has done in Austin, they have a clubhouse there. They have, you know, snacks, working spaces, uh, Justin Murphy's podcasting out of it, a lot of conference rooms, a lot of cool urbiters to hang out with. And then they have affiliated spaces like, you know, Will owns, uh, Bitmap owns, I think I'm supposed to call him Bitmap now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bitmap owns. Uh, <laughs> His slave name. Exactly. Uh, get rid of the slave name. Bitmap mm-hmm, is the mm-hmm. future. Yeah. So, yeah, he owns the Commodore, and then one of his friends, Austin, somewhat confusingly given the city name, owns, like, a very cool space where they do their meetups in Austin, Texas. Um, and so, you know, like, there's affiliated spaces. There's, like, one hub, which in Austin right now is Assembly Capital, and then you have affiliated spaces that improve the quality of life for the community. Um, and I could kind of go into, like, I think it's nice to talk about first, like, what are the upsides of this lifestyle? Why are people sure. doing it? It sounds slightly exhausting, but... Um, 
But I also get into the downsides because that relates to like why I'm why Aleph is the building that society. That you're, you're vomiting and shitting your brains out right now as we're trying to podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm like doing surprisingly well given uh, how I woke uh-huh, up. Uh-huh. So <laughs> I'm glad you uh, kept hiking until like four. That definitely yeah, gave me some yeah, time yeah. to like. I like I've never taken an Uber ride before that was three blocks. But I took a round trip Uber to the yeah. grocery store three blocks away because I was looking down the street and I was just like, I don't think I could walk that. Uh, yeah, so. <laughs> well, I, was, I was actually uh, I was fishing at the end of this, so you should be glad that the the trout were giving me some some trouble. So, mm. um, yeah, so hard, uh, yeah, yeah, please. So yeah, go ahead. Tell me what you were you were thinking. Yeah, so I'd say like the pros are like this general sense. Like for me, it was kind of about adventure. Like I was just very. I'd always loved traveling as a kid. We had gone to Europe a lot. Um, I had gone when I was running a startup in 2018, 2019. Um, I'd done a lot of trips to Europe. Tim got married over in Barcelona. I just always kind of loved living abroad. Um, and so when COVID like pushed everything remote, I could finally do that. And, you know, I think the bottom line theme was like, I could live twice as well um, for half as much. You know, I was like, going out to eat a lot more. I was going out to cafes instead of sitting working from home and being bored, uh, my tech job. I was actually, like, making more friends. Like, I don't know. There was something about Boston. It doesn't seem like you had this Montana. But, like, Boston people did not hang out. Like, I lived on a street with one of my closest friends from high school. I bought a house, like, five houses down. We never talked once in the last... We we talked most recently in July. We were, like you know, like best friends. And it was like that vibe across the board in Boston. Um, And I don't think it's just me. I think a lot of people had their sort of social scenes just like nuked by COVID. And so Mm -hmm. because it was nuked and this is like October, 2020 at this point, I'm like, how much longer am I going to wait for this? You know, I've always wanted to go abroad. I can work remotely now from Mexico. Uh, Mexico just opened. And so so it, it was like the adventure that got me there, the adventure that still really, really excites me. Um, like, yeah, I got water poisoning last night cause I was stupid. Like, but it's still, I don't know. I'm just like way less, I'm way more like activated and less bored. And then when I talk to the others in this space, it's, it's very similar. It's just like, you know, they were living in SF or they were living in New York and there was this great opportunity to go somewhere else. Like Tondis had the opportunity to leave North Carolina with his crew and go to Hawaii. It's like, why wouldn't we just go to Hawaii? <laughs> and then that brought him then to be like, oh, well, Tim Luck's in Mexico, no runs in Mexico. Why don't I go to Mexico City? That's where we met Librex, Sarpin. So it's like, I don't, it's just like the sense of like, we want to be able to build the future we want and we want a sense of adventure. Um, and then it's just great to like, not have to worry so much about money and, you know, getting by like you had to in New York and SF. Of course, yeah. I, all that stuff's really exciting. You know, like I met Tim like living in Korea and, and traveled and lived abroad for a, a long time. And But, you know, I ha- had to do that very cheaply without, without a lot of money because, you know, I was in, in my 20s and it always was tied mm. to some particular activity, a particular job, or really trying to smush a life to, to fix that, to fit it. And now it seems like there really is an opportunity to have this be a part of your life, like one Lego piece, you can snap in and out as it, as it fits. And you don't have to completely contort everything to be able to go on these adventures and continue to work and live mm, and yep. con- connect with people. Yeah. I'd like to comment on that. I think like, cause I've seen a lot of people do different, take different bites out of this sort of like urban expat society. Um, so like people like Librex, you know, he 
he lives in New York. His scene is in New York, but he does travel pretty often to hang out with us, like Mexico. He came to El Salvador on like a moment's notice for like a week or 10 days. Um, and then you have people like Hazad. He came to Mexico City for a month. You know, he's normally living out of New York. Uh, and then he also, you know, took the opportunity to live in Costa Rica with Bitmap um, at that at that resort. So you don't have to do it 100%. And like when I first did it, I did it as like six weeks in Mexico. And because I had had such a good time, that's what drove me to start selling my houses. Um, but I didn't have to sell anything. You know, I was maybe spending, it was basically costing me the same amount as a normal vacation, like call it like $1,500 for a month. Actually, I think my apartment was 1000 because of COVID. It was so low. Um, mm-hmm. So I didn't, I, I got to try this lifestyle without really taking, you don't really have to take any risk to try it. Um, and that's part of what I also want to build out is this ability, you know, one to 12 months or even, you know, one week and pick a spot where like, I get so many messages from herbiters being like, where are there people right now? Like, I want to meet more herbiters. Um, I want to chat with like, you know, combine the money, uh, people and ideas like Silicon Valley did. Uh, but they're just, no one knows where that is. The only current forum for that is basically assembly as well as, um, Talon offsites. And if you don't work for Talon, you're kind of out of luck there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me let me ask you a question on a slightly different topic. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this as you were describing your vision of the the frontier and and Daniel Boone and and even the Puritans coming in with plows, right? Because you know, on on one hand, we have a vision of the frontier as incredibly exciting, this expansion, this taking on the unknown, and then there I have and I think many other people also of the frontier in that expansion as you know completely destroy, destroying the people who already lived on what we call the frontier so I, so when I think about you know wealthy Americans coming in and buying up land and trying to build communities I do just have the question like what sort of relationship are you interested in having to the actual places that you're going and the in the people that live there and how do you do that in a way that like both enables you to live this really interesting, exciting life and is, I don't know, responsible, fair, and like, you know, not super lame for the people who are already there. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's like, I want to talk about two different things. One is sort of like things happen. The other is like, how are we controlling what thing happens to make it the most positive future possible? Like, yes, civilizations typically replace each other. If you read uh, who we are and how we got here, that's really obvious. But at the same time, it's like, does it need to be so negative for the people uh, where you're kind of setting up shop? And I think that's something that, like, El Salvador has been a massive learning experience for me. Uh, Mexico, they weren't really that interested in getting to know us. You know, like, no government official talked to us. Like, Mexico City is too big a city. It's too rich a city. They don't really care about, you know, another 10 to 20 urbic guys hanging out there. It doesn't have any effect. Sure. Um, whereas for El Salvador, you know, we had government meetings. My dad, for example... Um, he met with the president's brother in the presidential palace. My dad just worked with an El Salvadorian lawyer to get the first draft of a Dow law done. So that's like super exciting. Like we're the ones shaping their economic development. Uh, that's not possible in most other places and they want our help. Like they keep texting me like, Hey, how do I bring more startups? How do we bring education here? How do we get access to the jobs? Are you texting with the El Salvadorian president as we speak? Uh, can neither confirm nor deny. Sure, yeah, yeah. But I love you, Bikaley. Um So, 
as do your people. You know, I just ask random El Salvadorians, like, what do you think of Bekele? And like, sometimes they have a legitimate critique, but most of the time they're like, you know, the country is so safe now. It's now safest Latin America. And the roads are so much better that like, we just don't really care. Like our previous presidents just sucked. Um, he's their boy. So, he's their boy. Like, you know, one guy just, one of my Uber drivers just went on a rant about it. It was just like, and then, you know, why could I understand his rant? Actually, weirdly, they speak a lot of uh, English here. It's very easy to find English speakers. They're an extremely Americanized culture. So I do think it it depends. Like, there is strategy where you select locations. I included that in my Austin meetup deck. Locations I thought were good. Um, locations where I thought we could work with the people. El Salvador I'm most excited about because the government is so interested in working with us and taking our feedback and also because the locals are so interested. Like I don't do most of my work with Americans in El Salvador. They're mostly El Salvadorian citizens. Like I work with That's really cool. Yeah, like 10 El Salvadorians here and I don't know, I consider them very close friends. I want to see their country succeed and I saw Ukraine succeed. You know, like that sounds stupid to say because of the war, but like I saw Kyiv succeed. Like Kyiv was perhaps the best city for remote work I'd ever seen. Uh, like the cafes are cool. The women are attractive. The food is insane. It's better than New York by far in terms of food. So like, I don't know, I think I have a different perspective because I've seen success in a developing country. And I was always a little pissed off by like, uh, frankly, like the urban, the sort of like, I don't know, armchair comments about Ukraine coming out of the, out of urban groups where it's like, oh, it's like a muddy shithole. And like, it's just like so far from the reality and people have kind of lost hope that you could actually flip a country to be developed with a lot of jobs pretty quickly. So before we go, I wanted to ask you one final question just related to how does Web3 and crypto enable this new sort of network state, network age and, and your project in a way that it wasn't possible to before? Mm. So I think there's a lot of things related to network age that I'll start on first, then I'll talk through like a very particular example of how it's working. And then I can try to end with LF and kind of what we're doing. Um, and so overall tools, like clearly cyber money is awesome. Uh, it's creating this massive parallel economy. It's like the reason people are looking to exit. It's because they have jobs outside of the old system. If I wasn't like in Urbit, Bitcoin, ETH and all this stuff, I'd probably still be working at a megacorp. Or trying to find something. I actually probably would have gone like, you know, your route and just gone to Montana, honestly. I was already thinking sure. of that. Uh, I would have just kind of like didn't have much hope before I found these crypto tools. Um, I think they're massively democratic. You know, you can, despite where you're born, you can earn the same type of currency. Uh, that's insane. That's awesome. Like Argentina never had that. Argentina's currency collapsed 20x, 20x since I last went there. I'm going there on Sunday and like, you know, before it was four pesos to a dollar. Now it's like 200. Um, mm. So like, actually, that's 50x. Holy shit. Uh, so yeah. So like <laughs> now you can earn, you can earn like a current, like, you know, it's, it's just insane how cheap it is there. Dachis is there now. Um, and so like, Money matters. Money is an incredibly important tool. Having a good money is essential to human thriving. It's the technology that lets you specialize, save. In like capitalism requires a good money. Um, so that one's critical. I think the computing one, Urbit. You know, I'll just say Urbit because there's really nothing else right now. Um, you have to own the databases that you're working on. So you can't build a network state that's like edgy and different if like it's running on Discord because when it gets too big or too edgy, it's dead. Uh, like period. So 
you know, not your, not your database, not your data. Like the Russians learned this too with, in the, in relation to money where like they thought they had 300 billion and then it just got changed in the database from like saying Russia to like unknown. And eventually they'll probably say Ukraine on that 300 billion. Um, so those tools are critical. I really like multi-sigs. I think multi-sigs solve a lot of collective action problems. So like pretend you were trying to do like, I don't know, like a meetup today, you'd have to like give all the money to one person. You'd like, it would require, there'd be no visibility and there'd be a lot of trust. And so I think a lot of social interactions that could have happened don't because of the lack of sort of multi-sig coordination of a wallet. Um, so I love that one. I'm trying to think of the obvious other ones. I love tokens as like a way to sort of incentivize action. And I know Tim Luck sort of, I don't know if I've said it clearly enough because I think he hasn't quite gotten it yet, but it's this idea that like, look, when we produce like Dogecoin, like what happened in 2021, we got, we incentivize people to like find the next coin. Why don't we incentivize people to find the next artist? Why don't we like differentiate bytes of data with NFTs so that when you listen, when you're the first person to listen to an artist song on Spotify, it's different from the billionth because it's very different to the artist. And it, it endows it with like status, like, oh, I discovered this artist. Um, so I'm, I'm just extremely bullish on like, on it for money and computing and then for community. Although I need to do a lot more kind of like, I think writing on the community aspects. Cause I, I find it sometimes clicks with people, but I, I think I can make that a lot sharper how it clicks. Um, yeah. I yeah. mean, this is something that we're definitely going to continue to discuss on this podcast and in general, I think we know, you know, like I, I appreciate that we sort of are all coming at this from a different perspective and I look forward to hearing more about this as we go on. So no run. Welcome to the network age. Welcome Thank to the you. show. Glad to have you on the podcast and to all our listeners out there. We will see you next week. Awesome. Thank you. Take care.